Good afternoon. This is Dr. Daniel Guerra, and this is Authentic Biochemistry Podcast. Today is the ninth day of uh, November, 2023. We're going to do a new biomedical portrait, and rather than single out a very specific disease or a phenomena uh, of interest, I'm going to start off with a very general topic, and then we're going to sculpt that topic into multiple discussions wherever the uh, context of the ideas um, allow me to uh, obtain. That means that I'm not sure exactly where we're going to go with our discussion of the topic, which is primarily natural killer cells, that component of the (coughs) quasi-acquired immune response. And we're going to follow natural killer cells through their interactions in different um, disease states and in functioning according to interaction with lipids, proteins, and of course, cell-cell contacts, as well as all the intermediary metabolism, which might be able to um, envisage, would be invoked by natural killer cell-mediated delivery of the immune response. So. Let's get started with it. So this is going to be chapter one of Biomedical Portrait 6, which we're going to call Natural Killer Cells. I kind of like that. That way it leaves me open to be able to um, go in multiple directions, which is what I do, I guess, anyways. So let's first think about adaptive immunity. There are cells called natural killer cells, we'll just call them NKs, and they're known best for their nonspecific cytotoxicity. Now, in terms of what is their percent in the overall lymphocyte population, relatively small percent, between 5 and 10. And even though there is no specific antigen receptor on NK cells, that is, they're not going to be interacting directly with um, a T-cell receptor-mediated response, <clears throat> they play a major role in all the immune defenses against infected cells and stressed cells and also in tumor cells. So natural killer cells are very significant in the global immune response. Now, they unfortunately also contribute to and have been recognized as being associated with autoimmune diseases. And indeed, they're more versatile, and K's are more versatile, even than having everything from pathological to non-pathological um, sequelae, which, of course, all immune cells would follow that line of logic, because natural killer cells also play a regulatory role in tailoring the innate and the adaptive immune responses by altering those interactions of those other cells with conventional antigen presentation motifs. Now, this, is, this occurs because <coughs> natural killer cells will be secreting cytokines that will alter the categorical quantity, quality, modality, and relational immunoresponses. So, for example, natural killer cells, of course, critically important 
for the development of the normal placenta. Now, natural killer cells aren't cytotoxic in that regard, but they work via their ability to recognize the presence of these different, unique, that is, paternal MHC, and therefore initiate the remodeling of blood vessels in the placenta. Okay? So you get the idea of where we're going with this. Now, <clears throat> I'll remind you that in biochemistry, we normally encounter contrarian events. And that means that is glycolysis completely shut down when gluconeogenesis is beginning to start up in a cell? No. So the glycolysis can be functioning at some lower level as new carbon sources are being infiltrated into the hepatocyte, for example, to generate glucosynthesis. And the glycolytic pathway can still be converting pyruvate, for example, to acetyl-CoA until the hepatic cell completely switches over to being gluconeogenic. And that will involve several soluble factors to make that event occur. Now, that's not a contradiction because there is a temporal displacement there. Right? We've also talked about in biochemistry the idea of the paradox. And there are multiple definitions of paradox that you can find in uh, normal native literature as well as in philosophical and even in uh, more scientific uh, publications. So one that I like, it sort of fits where I'm going to be going with my own definition, a working definition of which I'm going to now elaborate on, is that a paradox is typically some kind of conclusion I wouldn't say it's a premise, but it's more like a conclusion that seems to be a contradiction. And because it's a lot contradiction, it um, refutes or it violates the first law of logic, which basically says you cannot have the excluded middle, meaning you cannot have A and not A at the same time in the same place. Okay, that would be a contradiction. Now, the paradox, though, doesn't stop there. It still seems to, when one considers it, when they first hear it or observe it, the paradox itself, the phenomena, seems to still maintain some collateral truth to both sides of that equation, Okay, where that equation doesn't seem like it can be balanced. So what a paradox will do normally when in the context of a conversation is it will illuminate the mistake or the errors made in the judgments or in the construction of the argument so that what the premises seem to require as a conclusion indeed don't really require that conclusion. And this could have an association with the our definition or definition of of knowledge, which that which is typically justified true belief. So it could be that coming into examining a paradox, 
the individual may have certain beliefs of what they think is true going into it. And that will modify their consideration of accepting both a thesis and antithesis to derive a synthesis. Okay. And that means that there's a lot of um, incomplete resonance of the logical framework of whatever is being presented that observes as a paradox. Now, <clears throat> that's the working definition you can find in logic. Of course, I elaborated on it, right? And it's coming from memory. Now, it, by the same avenue of events, what I'm saying now is that a paradox, as a thing in itself, is distinct from the sort of prosaic, nominalistic uh, consideration of things we call paradoxical. Now, by that, I mean that you can predict the conclusion of an argument based on your assumptive understanding of the, of the truth factor equivalency of the premises. So another way of stating that is you can predicate the statements being made that result in a paradox. You can predicate a statement by calling it paradoxical, just saying this is a paradox, but in and of itself, it cannot be a paradox since that would invoke an element of true universality. Universality meaning something apodictic, something that must be. So at the beginning of the paradox, one says, well, I can't accept these two uh, premises as functioning together because at, at the very beginning, I can see that that would require me to settle on a decision, a judgment, that rules out the sublime possibility of accepting both events as being non-paradoxical. Because, by the way, there they are, they're presented to me, where I'm observing them, right? You see? Now, in that case, it wouldn't even be a paradox, because that would invoke a real universal. And real universals, to be able to accept them, anything beyond observable phenomena allowing for what is termed synthetic a priori cognition, by that I mean your brain is able to synthesize prior to the event what the event means as it unfolds, right? Synthetic a priori cognition, that's what I mean by that. And that's where real time simultaneous events could appear as a paradox, such as I need to finish this introductory <laughs> epistemic apprehension of uh, metaphysical events, knowing that in so doing, 
I will allow for paradoxical observations without agreeing to the required apodicticity. Now, synthetic a priori knowledge requires the schematization of the categories to the experiences endowed by the imagination. And they're they're real only within the confines of that phenomena. So the categories, you know, quantity, quality, modality, relation, kind of canonical standard categories of thought, or if you're an Aristotelian, reality. Now, let me let me synthesize this. I've made a point many times that and I and I'm going to use references here that is where I get some of these ideas because I, that's what you do as a scientist. I've said many times that Kant opens up the door of Plato's cave not only to the sunlight bathed real world however remaining phenomenological but more that heavy black oak door is opened to all that can be experienced or reasoned that is unequivocally just our world. That is the world we can observe. So a world basically that we manufacture and when I say that, I'm thinking about that synthesis of a priori that we manufacture, and by thinking the categories, right, under the confines of the intuitions, those are sense data, the ideas, those are what populate the imagination, and the concepts, which of course populate our understanding, all of those intuitions, ideas, and concepts that we use to frame nature. And the problem of never being able to really have any knowledge of things in themselves. By that, I mean outside of the focused lens of our senses. So now back to completing this. I'm saying this because the very first statement I made could be treated as a paradox, right, about natural killer cells. So let's just get more general and abstract. And I'm going to say that science is only a method for uncovering our sensible world. And so that means it's confined to phenomena, not to noumena. Noumena is what occur, an event in itself, right? Which is happening without any senses detecting it. So it's confined to phenomena and therefore shuts out the most intriguing thing in itself. And the thing in itself or the event in itself is what truth is because we're using our senses and maybe our senses are forming what we think is occurring, say, in nature. 
But if our senses were tweaked a little bit differently, if we had different optics, different hearing, different touch, etc., the senses slightly changed, which can occur even within an individual, depending on whether or not they're uh, confused or they're distracted, for example, um, then we don't really know what truth is. But this is still a formulation. That doesn't mean there isn't truth. It just, there is truth, obviously. It just means that we have to uh, allow ourselves the humility to be somewhat uncertain about it. So ultimately, what I argue is that we're left with the honorable human, although deficient and I guess even dubious justification of beliefs. And we talk about justified true beliefs. The true term in that uh, triad for what we mean by knowledge is what's on shaky ground. Yet, when we think about it, we only want to believe what is true. So we've resolved the equation by the time we're finished with whatever knowledge we now think we acquired. See? And that, again, is an a priori synthesis. So research scientific evidence. Here's an example, I guess. Research scientific evidence can be, you know, a, a super powerful means to justify premises as true. You know, premises leading to constructing an argument. Those premises for that argument may be both valid and sound, except here's the the change in sentence structure, as you can tell, except that new evidence or even just the clarification of the underlying concepts could, and very likely eventually with time, will refute the initial theory. Okay. So if you think about it, that really is a pretty good definition of uncertainty, where we have certainty as a component of uncertainty, and that's how we deal with it in research science. Now, I'm doing that because I want to expand the horizon of people that are think want to think scientifically about, even if they're scientists. As a scientist, doesn't you may be really good at doing research at the lab bench, maybe really good at having theories, but to be a to be a scientist that wants to also grasp the validation of the hypotheses that start out a research project, either your own or someone else's, requires stepping back. Because if we don't step back and think about the epistemology and the metaphysics of the conclusions, then very likely we're going to be wrong at least half the time. And when we will be right or wrong, that 50%, 50% itself is not something that can be determined very easily. Right? So it doesn't mean we don't look at research science and say, um, yes, these, these are important uh, evidentiary marks that we must follow through to, to proceed along with this research project. Of course, that's what we must do. 
we're confined to it. But what I'm saying is that when it is con- when there's something is considered resolved or concluded, and this is what experts believe when you hear that, no expert would ever say that because an expert, whatever that is, would admit with humility that it's only our current understanding, right? Because that's all science is, is trying to figure out the way nature works, right? It doesn't mean that we've, we've really resolved anything. So let's go back to talk about natural killer cells. This is where you'll see why I preface this lecture series with that bit of philosophy, because we're going to get into an involvement of discussing natural killer cells where there's going to seem to be a lot of contradictions or contrary and even paradoxical events. So natural killer cells will express 140 kilodalton isoform of the neural cell adhesion protein, CD56. But they lack, NK cells, the cell surface marker CD3. Okay, this is a differentiation of natural killer cells from other lymphocytes. All right, let me check my time here. Oh, yeah, we have good time. So, natural killer cells are therefore grouped into three subsets. And we've talked about these in the past. I'm now just giving you a recap of previous lectures, but the lectures were a long time ago. The subsets are based on the expression of proteins on the surface called CD56 and CD57. A known marker of replicative senescence and terminal differentiation in CD8-positive T-cells. Okay? So CD56 bright, CD57 minus those two markers of replicative senescence and terminal differentiation of any given CD8-positive T-cell. CD56 bright, that means uh, well-expressed, CD57 minus, not expressed, those kind of natural killer cells, themselves will express at the protein level high interferon gamma levels. And because of that, their function will exert minimal cytotoxic effector function. Whereas CD56 dim, very low expression of that particular protein, CD57 positive, simply there's a high level expression, but not necessarily at the level of bright. CD56 dim, CD57 positive natural killer cells express low interferon gamma, and those cells provide high degree of cytotoxicity. Because remember, these are cytotoxic cells. Now, what about CD56 dim and CD57 minus cells? Well, they are actually intermediate. So they express moderate levels of interferon gamma. And they exert what's called a temperate cytotoxic effector function. Okay? So that in itself almost seems paradoxical, doesn't it? Yes. When you add together on both sides of the equation the relative expression of those two polypeptides. So what does that mean? Well, 
in genetics, we'd call that an epistatic event. You know, the two gene products interact with each other differently or differentially according to function relative to their individual expression patterns. Okay, that's what that means. So that's a relational categorical consideration, you see? Now, let's go more into this. Upon stimulation of natural killer cells, they're cytotoxic, thus they kill target cells through two major mechanisms that require direct contact now with the NK to the target cell. One pathway involves target cell lysis, full stop. And that's mediated by cytotoxic molecules. The major ones in NKs, perforin and granzyme. And yes, they are stored in secretory granules, or if you will, borrowing from the innate immune system, which is finished, not lysosomes so much as what? Granules, right? Granules. Now, the other pathway involves the engagement of death receptors with their ligands, such as Fazl or Trail. And that will result in a caspase-mediated apoptosis. You see, totally different modes of delivery of destruction of the target. So NKs are poised to release cytokines and growth factors that will initiate a pro-inflammatory response that can be mediated by both an innate and an adaptive immune sequelae. Okay. So you get to, again, why I mentioned this whole discussion prior to our, our introduction to NKs. Now, a paper published a few years back, um, which I'll put, of course, I'll put in the show notes, 2018, told us that natural killer cells are considered the primary defense lymphocyte against virally infected and virally transformed cells. And the defense system that they maintain extends to include antimicrobial responses and even the elimination of aged senescent cells. NK cells will also resolve an inflammation, that's correct. And at the same time, they have been known to induce the adaptive immune response. Yeah. So the potential, the potential for these NK cells are identified again by the CD56 positive CD3 negative protein phenotype. And they are located, these NKs, in the majority of organs and tissues, particularly in the peripheral blood, but also in the skin, lymph node, bone marrow, thymus, of course, liver, intestines, lungs, uterus, and almost all other organs you might think about that are commonly considered having some kind of immune-mediated response on site. Okay. 
So NK cells are classified in two distinct populations based on their surface density of their CD56 expression. That's why we call it bright and dim, right? Basically, that's a caricature of flow cytometry, okay? That's why they're called that. So we, that's the density of the protein on the surface of the cell, not necessarily the total quantity of the protein, but the density at a specific location. And that's going to play a role in how natural killer cells organize these polypeptides in the membrane. And where I'm going to talk about there is about membrane lipid rafts. Yes, indeed. Within the NK cells, right? So I'm looking at this. I only got about a minute or so left. I think, uh, yeah, I think I'm going to stop here. We're going to get into some detail about the expression of CD56. Maybe the, uh, the, some of the other proteins involved in um, phenotyping natural killer cells. And then we're going to get into a disease, brand new, published just a few months ago, um, that involves natural killer cells, or at least potentially does. So, and that's, that's actually what got me involved in this whole discussion. Um, I found this paper that uh, intrigued me because it involved, um, well, a component of lipid metabolism. Um, that always intrigues me, but also the immune response. So we had to cover it. And then I realized we could do a lot just about talking natural killer cells in, uh, in the broader sense. Dr. Dan Guerra, 9 November, 2023, Thursday afternoon, um, saying bye for now.